Hey there, whizzes. We are wrapping up season eight of the podcast with one of my very favorite styles of episodes, a rapid fire Q&A. In this show, I'm going to address your questions about category review schedules, imposter syndrome, expensive products, never hearing back from buyers, how to gain confidence in pitching, slow sales, and minimum order quantities. Let's get right to it. You're listening to Food Biz Whiz the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Allie Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. Hey there, my whizzes. I cannot believe that we are on episode 99 and the wrap up of season eight of this podcast. One of the reasons why it took me so long to launch a podcast in the first place was that I knew if I was going to do one, I was going to go all in on it. (laughs) For me, that meant weekly episodes, a professional production team, show notes, and like the whole works, right? I am super proud of the consistency that I've had since launching, and I want to celebrate the fact that I've done 99 episodes in a row, 99 weeks in a row of the Food Biz Whiz podcast. It is kind of blowing my own mind here. So we are going to do a really fun show next week for the 100th episode of the podcast, where I am outlining 100 buyer knows. That's all the reasons that a buyer would possibly say no to your brand and how you can go about forming those rebuttals. So if you're struggling with those buyer pitches or you feel like it's taking so much back and forth, next week's episode, our 100th episode is for you. For now, Let's get going with this rapid fire episode, starting with a question on category reviews. So here it is. Allie, I missed my um, a retailer's category review schedule. Do I really have to wait until next year? This is a great question. I get this question a lot. So my answer is no. Now, if I have buyers listening, they might be annoyed to hear me sharing the secret, but I'm going to tell you this. If your pitch is convincing enough, that my, that buyer may bring you in outside of the category review schedule, but it's got to be 100% worth it for them. And they need to have zero doubt in their mind that you are going to be a surefire win for your category. They have to have zero hesitation. That buyer needs to know 100% that you are going to help them meet or ideally exceed their buyer goals, right? So how do you do that? It's the pitch, of course. This is my very favorite thing to coach on inside of Retail Ready, and it's perhaps the hardest thing to nail down in your food business because it's really hard to get get those buyers to give you real talk, right, and real feedback about your sales pitch. We have students inside of Retail Ready who land accounts, big accounts, outside of category review schedules. We recently had a student land into Whole Foods Market regionally, completely outside of her category review schedule. And it was really fantastic to watch, but all it took was her reformatting her pitch. So that buyer, again, had zero hesitation that they needed her product 
urgently, that they couldn't wait an entire year for that category review to come back around, right? That's the goal here. Now, I'm going to be honest that there inevitably are going to be some buyers who are completely insistent that you stick to the category review schedule And that's fine, right? We have some strategies within Retail Ready on how you might kindly push back on that. But above all, respect that buyer, right? You don't want to mistakenly like burn a bridge that could lead to a great relationship down the line. Okay, so category review schedules. No, you don't always have to stick to them, but you have to know what you're doing in order to to make it worthwhile for that buyer to ignore their category review schedule. All right, next up, you guys. How can I stop comparing myself to other food founders that I see on social media? Oh, this is a good one. This is a really good one. So I've addressed a version of this in the past, but it's worth repeating and expanding upon. So I think I said last time that it would be worth an entire episode on imposter syndrome, that we could do that for you guys if you want it. But let me give you my high level thoughts right now. So first, and I say this in like the nicest, kindest way, you need to just stop it. Stop that behavior. Cut it out. (laughs) Stop scrolling. Stop following those people if you need to, right? And just stop that self-destructive behavior. This this action, like scrolling and comparing, is entirely in your control. You're the only person who picks up your phone and scrolls Instagram, pausing on other founders' feeds, right? No one's making you do it. So stopping that behavior is 100% a choice of yours, right? And I highly, highly recommend that you do a purge of anyone, just unfollow anyone who makes you feel bad, who makes you question your own business decisions, or who makes you feel inferior, right? We don't need that. Unfollow. (laughs) Now, I I bet I know where your brain is going here, right? You might argue that you have to look at the competition to see what they're doing, or that you want to look at them for inspiration, right? Uh, that That it comes from a good place. You want to be inspired. And I have two important things to say when, when a founder pushes back and tells me this, hear me out. So first off, looking to other brands for inspiration is a BS excuse that you are using to justify your scrolling and your comparison right? Being inspired should never make you feel bad about yourself or inferior to someone else. So let's just be really honest and call it is call it like it is right. That, that when you're scrolling, right, that you are comparing yourself to others. That is what you're doing right now. If you can, you can do that intentionally. Sure. Right. If you want, um, you can look for inspiration if you want, Absolutely. I'm all for that, but don't call it inspiration if it's actually making you feel like crap, right? Okay. So number two here is when you say you need to look for inspiration to, or to like keep tabs on what other people are doing, you need to temper that thought with the understanding that you have zero idea 
what is actually going on behind the scenes of that other brand and in their business, right? We all know by now that social media is just a highlight reel of someone's best life, of their best days, and it's not the full picture of what is going on in their business. So if you look at another brand and you see that they're running paid ads or they're doing a giveaway or that they're selling on Amazon or they switch to smaller packaging or they're doing a sale at a local independent market or maybe the founder's on vacation or they're raising capital or like whatever it is, right? You have no idea whether or not that strategy is working for them, how effective it is, all the decisions that went into that um, that play for them, right? We don't know that. We can't. There is no way of knowing that. So the other thing to remember, so so let me let me conclude that here. If we don't know for sure why they're making the moves that they're doing and whether or not they are working out well for that business, then we can't truly judge what's going on. We are just making assumptions. So the other thing to remember is that we don't know all of the steps and effort and successes and frankly, mistakes and missteps that got a business to where they are today. Again, we don't, we only see the highlight reel. Of course, it can feel like some brands are an overnight success, but we don't often see the months or the years leading up to where they are today. We don't know the long hours that they put in or the weekends of work or the sacrifices that they made to be where they are today right? And again, we don't know if they're even happy or financially stable or hitting their goals, even if they do look quote unquote successful on social media. I think it's key to remember this time and time again, what works for someone else isn't automatically going to work in your business. So it's a waste of time and energy to try to replicate someone else's success using someone else's strategy. The last thing that I will say here is that everyone has something to learn and areas of their business where they can improve upon, right? No one has it all figured out, even if they look like they do on social media. I mean, I look back to where I was seven years ago when I started my consulting business, and I have come so far from back then, right? I have learned so much when I start to doubt myself or my business, or if we're going to hit our quarterly or annual goals, it's really helpful for me to remember that it wasn't so long ago that I would have given anything to be in the position that I am in now. And that is something to celebrate. Okay. So I went on a little rant here, (laughs) but it's something that I feel very passionate about when you compare yourself to others, or frankly, copy other people's strategy. I mean, don't get me started on that one. You won't win. Okay. (laughs) On to a more lighthearted question. Here's this one. My product isn't selling because it's too expensive. What choice do I have besides lowering my price point? Okay. No, (laughs) don't lower your price point due to slow sales, right? Go listen to my episode from last week about creating a high value brand with chef Evelyn Williams. I'll link it in the show notes here for you guys. So if you've done your financials and you know what 
you know what you need to charge in order to make money. It's not a matter of dropping your price until you're barely squeaking by. It is a matter of building a brand that warrants that higher price point. That's everything from your visuals to your packaging, to your messaging, to your customer experience on your website or when they interact with you in person, to your social media presence, to where you decide to sell and how you promote your product. It's all of those things. It all goes into creating a brand that resonates with your target audience that that you need, the target audience that you need to capture in order to sell your product, all right? So I don't want I don't want the automatic assumption to be I'm just going to put my product on sale. I'm just going to lower the price. I'm going to like take lower margin. That is not the first solution. Okay, so we are going to take a quick break. I will be right back with questions around dropping off samples for buyers, confidence while pitching, slower sales, and order minimums. Hang tight. This episode is sponsored by the Good Food Awards, the nation's first and only initiative to honor food and drink crafters for excellence in both taste and sustainability. Each summer, the Good Food Awards opens entries to crafters across 18 delicious categories. I honestly cannot recommend this nonprofit organization enough after working closely with them for seven years. The entry form takes just five minutes to complete with a deadline at the end of this month on June 30th. You'll ship your samples in late late August with a big blind tasting that has included really fantastic judges like Alice Waters, Samin Nosrat, Michael Pollan, and many, many more. In a recent awards season, 23 Retail Ready students were finalists, and 15 of those were honored as winners. In witnessing their growth, I can tell you that it is an incredible marketing and community building opportunity, with many winners reporting between 10 and in one case, 400% growth in the following year. The fee to enter is $78 and entry period is June 1st to the 30th. So be sure to go to goodfoodfdn.org to make your submissions and use the code foodbizwiz for 10% off your first entry. All right, we are back. Let's get right to this next question. Allie, how soon should I email the buyer back after I drop off samples if I haven't heard anything. All right. I love talking about this sort of stuff. So first I'm going to back up and I'm going to question your approach leading up to dropping off samples. I don't have any more information in this question, so I don't know what you did, but I'm curious, did you make contact with the buyer and was that buyer expecting your samples? If not, I'm sorry to say that your samples are likely just sitting in the sample box. So let me tell you what this is. The sample box is this thing that nobody really talks about, but every single retail store that I have consulted with with has a sample box. So it is literally a cardboard box. (laughs) Typically there's one in the walk-in that stays refrigerated and there's one that is above the buyer's desk. And typically it is overflowing with samples that have been dropped off at the store and just left with a friendly cashier or a floor staff. So what happens when that cashier, I'm just going to use cashier for example here, but you know, could be anyone on the, on the retail floor when that cashier accepts your samples and you know, you go in, you've got your samples in like a little Brown craft bag. You've got your cell sheet tucked in there. You've got your business card. Like you're all excited. <laughs> you probably go in and ask to meet with a buyer and the cashier says no. And you're like, okay, well, here are some samples for the buyer. That cashier 
one of two things happens. Either that cashier takes your samples, they look in the bag and they're like, these look delicious. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take a little bite. I'm going to take these home with me. Like we don't need this product anyway. Like they evaluate the product and they eat it. Right. Cause it, it does look delicious. And, but let's say we have a bunch of trustworthy cashiers, not to like knock on these cashiers, right. A trustworthy cashier puts that little bag in the sample box for the buyer. And then sure enough, the buyer decides to review those samples once a quarter, you know, maybe once every three months or so. That's what we would do at Buyrate. Like when we got around to it, we would meet as a buying team and go through that sample box and you'd pull out the samples and taste them with, with your buying team or, you know, however many people have to make product decisions there. And here's what happens when you're put in the sample box. Likely your product is separated from the sell sheet. Your product is tossed in a box and then other samples are put on top. <laughs> Your product gets like crumpled or broken or like expires. Any of those things happen. And it's certainly not the way that you want to present your product for the first time to a new buyer, right? So <laughs> that's the sample box. You do not want to end up in the sample box. Okay. So what do you do instead? You make contact with that buyer ahead of time. So you are not blindly shipping samples or dropping them off with the cashiers or the floor staff. This is one of the key things that we teach inside of retail ready, how to connect with that buyer ahead of time. So you can meet with them directly. So you can pitch them on your product. So they say yes to receiving those samples directly. And they say yes to tasting them immediately, avoiding the sample box. I mean, I, I hate, I hate being the bearer of bad news, but you guys know that I also like to give you tough love. And I will say, if you end up in the sample box, it can take months before the buyer even looks at your product. Okay. So that's the first thing to clean up how you drop off samples in the very first place. Now, if you put your samples directly into the buyer's hands, I advise that you follow up every two weeks until you get a hard no. And even when you do get that, no, there are ways to turn it around into a yes. Again, we'll get deeper into that on next week's episode on my show about 100 possible no's from those buyers. Again, remember, you want to be that squeaky wheel that is top of mind for those buyers. Following up every two weeks the right way is the way to stay in communication and be at the top of the list when that buyer does a reset in your category. Okay. Hope you guys like that tough love. Let me, let me know here. I feel like, um, the sample box is something that people rarely talk about, but it's, it's really important to know about. If I just, if you're hearing about the sample box for the first time, will you please <laughs> send me a DM on Instagram, tag me, tag me in a story, uh, share the news about the sample box. I want to, I want to spread that message far and wide. Okay. Continuing on Allie, how do I gain confidence for pitching? Okay. I've got two pieces of advice for you here. First one is obvious. I'm just going to say it. You should join us in retail ready. Now I don't want this to just become the go-to answer for all of these questions, but for this one in particular, it's clear. This is exactly what we do inside of retail ready. We coach you on how to understand who is buying your product, why you're different from the competition and how you can package that all up in a pitch 
in a pitch that captivates the attention of wholesale buyers. When you work through Retail Ready content and you practice your pitch directly with me on a live coaching call, you gain an understanding of exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to interact with those dream wholesale accounts. If you, ha if you have a great product and you're pitching and not getting the results that you want, it's time to change that pitch. Okay, so secondly, whether, whether you're in retail ready or not, I'll say this, practice makes perfect. I always advise that you practice on accounts that you would like to be in, but that who aren't your absolute over the moon dream accounts. You wanna get in those reps before you go straight to your absolute perfect account because you will gain confidence through stumbling through your first few pitches. It's just normal. Okay, two questions left. Here, here's the first one. If my product isn't selling in a particular store, what should I do? Okay, again, I've got a couple things to say here. I've got three things to say here. So first off, you wanna make sure it is that account is the right fit in the first place. And it's important to remember this. Not all accounts are great for all brands. And that's okay, right? This is why we do the target audience work at the beginning of growing your brand. So you can identify, again, who is buying your product and where are they currently buying products that are similar to yours? You want to be in that store, right? Or that that style of stores. So let's say, for example, that you make, gosh, um, let's say you make a really luxurious high-end body butter. And you sell it for $19.99 for a little eight ounce tub. And like, it's just, you know, it's beautiful packaging, like beautiful experience. And your local bodega, you know, you have a relationship with them and they ask you to carry it. And so you say, yes, you know, you like the owner, you stock it on their shelves and it just sits there. It might be because your audience is not looking for their luxurious body butter at their corner market, right? And that is, it's important to recognize this because it's not on you. It's not that your product is overpriced. It's not that your product is incorrect in some way. It's just the wrong account for your audience. And that's okay. Okay. So we got to make sure that it's the right fit in the first place. Secondly, what I want you to do is verify that it's actually not selling well. So how do you do that? You ask the buyer. So you need to recognize. So, so often I see retail ready students who jump to the conclusion that their product is sl selling slowly. Yet, I always advise that you need to understand like what is the average velocity in your category, right? Is your category just slow in general, but you've got similar velocity to other comparable products in your category? I mean, that's great, right? <laughs> or that's great in terms of um, not being discontinued from the shelf, right? We want to ask, are your expectations realistic about how much product you are going to sell every week, right? Let's use, uh, let's use two products as an example here. Honey sells at a much slower rate than coconut water, right? Coconut, like a single serve coconut water. Like, let's say at a lunch rush, in a normal grocery store, perhaps we're going to sell two dozen bottles of coconut water every single day. People come in, they buy a sandwich, and every day they drink one jar of coconut, one bottle of coconut water. Honey, on the other hand, 
Think about how often you buy honey. I mean, we go through a lot of honey in our house and I'm still buying it maybe once a month, right? So I'm maybe buying 12 jars a year in my household. And so it's important to recognize that honey is never going to move as quickly as coconut water. And that's okay. You just need to have realistic expectations about the velocity in your category. So how do you know? Again, ask the buyer. So if it is the right fit and you've got slow sales, (laughs) you have a few options. You could run a promotion. You could connect with staff and get them fired up about your brand. So they are turning into like mini salespeople for your product line. You could do demos. Demos are coming back. (laughs) I just read an article yesterday about how Whole Foods is coming back with live demos. You could do location-specific digital marketing. There are tons of things that you can do to speed up sales and you can get really creative here. So past episode of the Food Biz Whiz podcast, episode number 67, I think it's called Slow Sales, What to Do When You Don't Have High Velocity would be a really great one to go back and listen to. Again, I'll link that in the show notes for you guys as well. Okay, so lastly, we're gonna end on this question. What should should my minimum order quantity be? Okay, so there is no one size fits all answer here, but I'll share that you can think about it either as a minimum case count or as a minimum dollar amount. I've seen brands do both. So you've got to figure out what is worth it for you to either deliver or ship that order to your accounts. The biggest mistake that I see early stage producers make is that you don't factor in your own labor to make that delivery, especially when it's a local store and you're just getting going. But remember this, okay? So let's say that you are delivering for free and you don't have an order minimum, right? People can order one case of product if they want. Let's say a store does that. They order one case of your product. And in this example, let's put some numbers here. Let's say your wholesale price is $6 and your case count is 12 units. $6 times 12 units is $72 of a sale, right? So you've got to figure out whether or not it is worth it for you to drive across town to make a $72 sale. Now, at the beginning of your business, you might say yes. (laughs) that your time feels free. It is worth it just to make that sale and to land on that shelf, right? So what you want to think about though, is what happens when you're a little bit bigger and a little bit more pressed for time. That's going to happen to you. (laughs) What happens when you hire someone to make that delivery for you? Or when you start shipping your product and you have to pay for shipping? Let's say gosh, let's say you take a vacation. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) How much would you have to pay, pay somebody else for their time to go and make that delivery, right? You have got to factor that in. Now, this is a much bigger conversation, but the point is that you have to decide what makes financial sense for your business. And you've got to factor in labor and shipping and or shipping, sometimes both, uh, that into that cost as you calculate your minimum order quantity. And again, your minimum order quantity can either be a case count, like you could say minimum order is three cases, or it could be a dollar amount. You could say minimum order is $150. And again, three cases, $150, just examples here. You have to decide what works best for your business. 
Okay, my whizzes, we covered a lot today. I hope this rapid fire Q&A set off some light bulbs, light bulb moments for you guys and that you took a whole bunch of notes as you listened. So I love doing these episodes and if you love them too, let me know. Come tell me in our Food Biz Whiz Facebook group or send me a DM on Instagram. I'm at It's Ali Ball and I'll link both of those in the show notes for you. So from here, come and join me next week in celebration of my 100th podcast episode where I'm going to talk about 100 different no's that you're going to hear from buyers and how you can turn those into yeses. I've got a cheat sheet that you can download next week and it's going to be a good one. I'll see you right back here soon. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Food Biz Whiz, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you never miss a beat. Hungry for more? Check out www.foodbizwiz.com. That's food, B-I-Z-W-I-Z.com for detailed show notes from all episodes. Thanks again for tuning in and stay busy.